Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, we are right in the thick of it now. We're having some deals go left and right just a few days until the deadline. How are you doing? Um... I'm doing okay. I warned my family that I was going to be a little on edge for the next couple of days. So they're like, you're steering clear because <laughs> they're like, oh, I'm busy. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah. Yeah, I feel really rude. I'll be having a conversation with someone and then I'll glance down at my phone and I see a, a notification that Ken Rosenthal has, has tweeted about a trade. And it's like, okay, I'm sorry. I have to I have to be rude now and, and refresh Twitter constantly for the next 20 minutes. As such is our life. Yeah, it's it's a it's a rough one, isn't it? <laughs> um, it, like I said, it's been a fun, it's been a busy week. Uh, but first, we want to just mention straight up at, at the forefront of the episode that values have been updated. It's our last full update uh, prior to the trade deadline, which is on this Tuesday, August second, at uh, three p.m. Pacific, six p.m. Eastern, I believe. Um, so so we've implemented our sweeping uh, updates for every player in the system. So some values will have changed. Most of them haven't changed too much. Um, It's it's largely just for the passage of time. You know, two weeks ago, our values included the final two months of the season plus two weeks in July that you're receiving from a player. But now that those two weeks have passed, we're just looking at the next couple months left in the season. Uh, So that's that's the primary update. There's been some adjustments for injuries and, and other odds and ends. Uh, but yeah, yeah. For, the, for the most part, it's just going to be slight decreases across the board, um, except for a couple a couple of uh, unique cases. Do you have any in specific you want to uh, talk about, John? Yeah. <clears throat> so the only other point to make on that is that um, as time goes on, the season performance of the current season, 2022, starts to outweigh the previous track record. And so, excuse me, people have asked on, on Twitter, for example, oh, Soto went down a bit. Yeah, that he went down a bit, partly because of the passage of time, but also partly because he's a little bit lower than he was. Like, he was a seven-war player in 2021, and that mattered at the beginning of the year. But as time goes on, he's on a five-war track right now, and so that tends to have a little bit small of an effect as well. And that goes the opposite as well. If somebody's having a really good year, you'll start to see the number creep up and vice versa. So those those factors start to weigh a little bit more as well. Yeah, and another factor with Soto, uh, we we don't need to dwell on him too much. We'll talk on him a little bit more later. Uh, but another factor with him is just that 2022 is, you know, by by traditional surplus, it's it's expected to be his most valuable year he has remaining, just because he's on the lowest salary that he'll be on for these three years. And yeah, there's there's some projected, um, both you know, bounce back from what's been a down 2022 by his standards, as well as you know natural aging curve expecting him to continue to even improve a little bit expected but uh, his salary is going to increase drastically for the next two years whether he's extended or not so even if he's roughly the same player a little bit better his salary will be increasing at a higher rate than that meaning his 2023 and 2024 just on the surface uh, on at a first glance are going to have a lower surplus than his 2022 so every couple weeks he's losing of this valuable 2022 season on such a low salary is going to affect him more than losing two weeks of his, you know, 2024, whatever he's making, probably an arbitration record that season. Yeah. So we're in the fat part of the curve in 2022 and it's going to get the surplus. The the difference between his performance and his salary is going to get smaller and smaller, which is why the, the surplus number is going to 
decrease as a product of that, it, it, you know, <clears throat> a little bit at a faster pace. I think that's what you're saying, if I said that correctly. Yep, exactly. And then one other name I wanted to point out here, and it's, it's one we'll be talking about plenty throughout the episode, uh, is Frankie Montas. I, I believe he went up a little bit in this update, which may seem a little unusual. But for one, it's he, he had some real uncertainty two weeks ago uh, because of the shoulder injury. And that's not all 100% gone. You know, he still hasn't uh, had a full seven-inning start where he keeps his velocity the whole way. And it's, okay, a clean bill of health. He's good to go quite yet. He's still kind of working his innings back, getting that velocity back all the way. Uh, but he's at least back now, and he's made two starts. And he isn't scheduled to make any more before the deadline. So that's going to kind of have to be his resume going into Tuesday. Um, so, so part of it is that there's a little less uncertainty. He's back now. And the other part of it, which we will get to in just a couple moments here, is <laughs> the, the starting pitching market looks to be a little inflated, to see the, say the least, if, if the Luis Castillo trade was any indicator. And we can talk about how much we believe that means for the market as a whole versus how much of it was specifically because he was the top guy and because it was the Mariners. Uh, but I just wanted to... Uh, Mention that up front in case anybody is wondering why his value might have increased a little bit. Yep, got nothing to add to that. Sweet. On that note, let's uh, head into the deals that did happen. So we're going to go ahead and go through this chronologically. So we'll get to Castillo in just a moment here. But we're going to start with the first major deal uh, that happened this last week. And that was the Yankees getting Andrew Benintendi. Uh, so rental outfielder, we had him at $8.1 million in median trade value. He goes to the Yankees from the Royals. In exchange, the Royals get three pitching prospects. It's right-handed pitchers Beck Way at $4.6 million, uh, right-handed pitcher Chandler Champlain at $0.8 million, and left-handed pitcher TJ Sykema at $2 million. So 8.1 to the Yankees, 7.4 total to the Royals. Very fair deal, accepted by our model. Um, the, the real elephant in the room that you have to discuss with Benintendi and has already been discussed ad nauseum in other places is the vaccination status issue. Uh, he was unable to make the trip to Toronto with the Royals and he gave some kind of wishy-washy comments over whether he would get vaccinated if he joined a contender that might have to head to Toronto either for meaningful regular season games or for playoff games. Uh, and then there was kind of a conflicting reports. Initial reports said he would be getting vaccinated to join the Yankees. Follow-up said, nope, that hasn't been confirmed yet. He still isn't sure, that kind of thing. So still still some uncertainty there. Uh, but it seems like the Yankees are going to take what they can get, or, or maybe they, you know, they, they think it's unlikely enough that uh, they will play playoff games in Toronto or... You know, they think it's maybe more likely that he will get vaccinated and they will have to go to Toronto without him. Regardless, they're picking up a quality player who there's really potentially a couple games that he won't be able to help them in. Uh, however, I will say that I do think uh, we, we did make a manual adjustment uh, to Benintendi's value to account for the uh, the vaccination issue and how it might impact his his market. You know, it. There, there were some reports after the trade that the Blue Jays still kind of considered him, but it really made the Blue Jays acquiring him very difficult. And it also threw a wrench into it for the Yankees or, you know, if they had been interested, the Red Sox or Rays or Orioles or even any other American League teams that might have needed to go to Toronto in the playoffs. So there were some questions there. We manually adjusted his value down a little bit. 
And even though he ended up going to the Yankees, which are one of those teams we figured would have some questions, you see the return here is a little bit below. You know, it's still well within our margin of error, but it's not like they, you know, it's not like they traded nine and a half million of value for him. And if we hadn't adjusted for the vaccination issue, it would have been perfect. Instead, it's it's in the other direction. So it seems like that uh, correction was a necessary one. So, yeah, and also... Yeah, and then that trade happened a couple of days before we updated our values. So, you know, it was 8.1 to 7.4. I think he went down to the high sixes. So anyway, right around there, it's almost exactly fair value. Just wanted to make that point, and there's a factor of time there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another kind of trickle-down effect from this is that it's it seems pretty guaranteed that Joey Gallo's going to be on the move now. Uh, ben Intendi is... Could not be a more different player from Gallo, and yet I saw a tweet, I think, from... It's either from Mike Petriello or Eno Saris or, or somebody like that. Um, they're projected to be very similar offensive contributors down the stretch, which is very funny, because they could not do it in more different ways. Uh, Gallo obviously really just hasn't had any kind of success in New York, and you know he's getting all the usual tropes of just can't handle the big city, can't handle the lights, all that kind of stuff. I always take those with a grain of salt, but it's very true that he's struggled there and he's probably going to find a new home on a contender or, you know, a wannabe, somebody, somebody that's really willing to take a risk on half a season of a guy who could be a real impact bat, or he could be what he's been for New York, which is a lot of strikeouts, a lot of frustration. Uh, but Benintendi, on the other hand, is a lot more along the lines of what uh, their, their lineup kind of needed. Uh, they have a big, powerful lineup with Judge and Stanton, and now Torres is hitting um, power up and all, up up and down the lineup. And they really could have used a left-handed bat that's more contact-oriented to join DJ LeMayhew near the top of the lineup, and that's exactly what Benintendi is. I mean, I don't think he's quite as good as he's been this season. It's been a little bit bad, but inflated, but there was also an approach change there. He's very consciously uh, going more for a line drive approach, contact hitting approach, rather than uh, he, he hasn't posted much in, in terms of power numbers like he had the previous few years, but it seems to have helped him. And he's a, always an on-base threat. So even if that Babbitt come down, comes down a little bit, he's still going to be a helpful contributor, and he's still going to be the type of player that really fits that lineup uh, very well. So if not for the vaccination question, I think all of it makes all the sense of the world. And if you're really looking at the vaccination question as maybe he has to miss a couple games or maybe he doesn't miss any at all, um, I, I think it's a fair gamble for the Yankees to take. I do too. And, you know, they didn't give a whole lot. I just want to make one comment on Sikama. People sometimes wonder why was he so low? Cause wasn't he a high draft pick and people thought more highly of him than might've been what was indicated by the, the number two in our model. And that's mostly because a he hasn't really developed um, to the point where people thought he might, and b he's Rule Five eligible, which means you know he needs to be added to the forty-man roster. And the Yankees have several of those guys, so they're facing a bit of a roster crunch issue. So by trading one of those guys, it alleviates that pressure a little bit, but it also means you know there's a little less leverage for them because the other teams know that, so they can get Sikama at a discount basically, which is what happened here. Yeah, for sure. Um, really quick, the Royals end of this. It's it's weird to kind of follow the Andrew Benintendi trade tree. Uh, the Royals picked him up, I believe that was, bef- yeah, it was before the 2021 season. 
and it was kind of a head scratcher. You know, that the Royals weren't very good, but they gave up significant prospects headlined by Khalil Lee, who was a pretty decent outfield prospect at the time. Uh, they gave up significant young talent to add two years of a kind of average outfielder. When when we discussed that trade as it happened uh, on the podcast, the, the title I gave the podcast episode was The Royals Just Got Ryan Sweeney. And I, I still kind of feel that way. That that's the very similar, you know, two-ish win kind of player that Benintendi was at the time, and and to an extent still is. Although he has, as I mentioned, changed his approach a little bit, and he's been much better than that this year. Um, but it was just a, a weird decision for the Royals. And after last year, when you know he was just kind of that two-win guy again, and getting more expensive, and the Royals were still bad, it, it didn't look very good. Even though Khalil Lee hadn't put it together for the Mets and still hasn't it, it just didn't look like a smart move for the Royals and now it, now that Benintendi has had such a strong first half they get to kind of recoup most if not all of their investment in a few pitchers but that also leads to the question of the Royals have had some really real struggles with pitching development in recent years and you know we'll we'll see how it goes with these three guys it's it's tough to get a read on the Royals what they actually think of them so they I think they think they're a lot better than they are year in and year out and so they make these kind of odd decisions and it's kind of had them stuck in this middling area for the last few years um, but they are starting to get some talent ready to the big leagues with Bobby Witt and Vinny Pasquantino and some other names that are on the way soon uh, Brady Singer is pitching well this year uh, but yeah they, they seem like they're just kind of spinning their wheels at this point um, I, I guess it's more of a more of a continued question on why they traded for Benintendi in the first place than it is anything specifically to do with this deal. Uh, but I think I, I think it's at least relevant to bring up as we put the bow on Benintendi's time in Kansas City. Yeah, I, I just don't think that made any sense at all when they first traded for him. Uh, I think they overshot. I think they thought maybe they were going to be contenders, but you know, they just didn't have the pieces at the time. They extended Dozier Really, that was a questionable decision. I think they were maybe hoping for Mondesi to be a little bit more healthy and productive than he turned out to be. So just, you know, you could attribute it to, like, you know, uh, just guesses that, you know, probably weren't as as informed as they should have been, some bad luck, you know, but they weren't quite ready to contend. By trading for a guy like Benatendi, they probably should have been, you know, contenders at that point with their core, and they didn't really have the core. So it was a bad move. At least they got something out of it. Yeah, I guess that's my point, that it it was a bad move at the time, and it still kind of looks like one in hindsight, but they've uh, they've found <laughs> they've found something at the end of the tunnel, uh, despite their best efforts, I guess. <laughs> All right, next trade. We can just very briefly touch on this one. It's more of a depth move. The Mets picked up outfielder Tyler Naquin at $0.4 million and left-handed reliever Philip Deal at $0 million. From the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for second base prospect Hector Rodriguez at 1.2 and right-handed pitching prospect Jose Acuna at 0.1. So 0.4 to the Mets, 1.3 to the Reds. Accepted by the model, that's still within the usual margin of error. Um, it's really just a depth piece for the Mets. They really need some bullpen help. Deal was not on the 40-man, and so he's not helping the team right away, but they're especially thin in left-handed relievers, so he's some nice depth there. Uh, and Naquin is a rental, but, you know, a decent platoon corner outfield type. And the the big perk there is he helps push Jeff McNeil out of the outfield uh, where he hasn't been the best defensively. 
and he can stay at second base and he's been hitting very well so it's important to keep his bat in the lineup um it also kind of helps provide them some insurance in case they can't get another big bat uh, between now and Tuesday. Just kind of helps lengthen the lineup, lengthen the bench. Uh, Nate Quinn directly replaces Travis Jankowski on the roster, which is a pretty notable improvement. Uh, so it's, a, it's an obvious move for them. Uh, for the Reds, though, I, I kind of have to tip your hat because they got both Nate Quinn and Deal for free. They were both minor league signings over the last couple years. And now they flip them for... You know, there are a couple lottery tickets. Both Rodriguez and Acuna are lower minors guys, uh, not the highest regarded prospects in the world. But if either of them is even, you know, if Acuna turns into a middle reliever or if Rodriguez is a bench pad, a, a utility guy, that's a huge win to get something like that just absolutely for free by picking up Deal and, and Naquin and, and flipping them when you can. So uh, more so than anything else, uh, a, a sign of good process by the Reds, which is not something that can be said uh, too often for that franchise. No, and they're doing a good job with their trades this season, as we will see in a moment. Uh, but uh, this one was fine. You know, they're basically playing with house money, as you mentioned. And, you know, Mets didn't give up much. Uh, so, you know, it was a deal kind of at the margins of the roster. And But what's interesting is the, the Mets seem to be playing the um kind of matchup game you know by trading for Vogelbach first obviously a you know left-handed hitter mashes righties but doesn't do anything else Naquin is also a left-handed hitter that's really good against righties but very much a platoon bat so they're like thinking platoons and I think part of the reason for that is they don't want to give up big prospect pieces for big chips I think they just want to play around the edges like this and if they can take on some money I know they're rumored in the JD Martinez sweepstakes uh, and that's mostly an acquisition based around money. Uh, if they can do that by still not giving up much in the way of prospects, they're happy because they just don't want to touch that farm too much. And this is another example of that. Yeah, I think they're pretty intentionally going for the Dodgers model of spend all the money in the world, but also still have a year in and year out a strong farm system. And I don't know, it's way too early to tell if they have kind of the player development and and scouting system an analytic system in place to keep such a consistent farm the way the Dodgers have, but it's pretty clear they're kind of placing that emphasis on uh, on the team underneath Steve Cohen and his bottomless pockets. Yeah, they'd rather use Steve's money for acquisitions than, than their farm. Absolutely. Okay, now we're into the big one. Uh, the Mariners, somewhat surprisingly, <laughs> they, they've picked up Luis Castillo. Uh, so he, we had him at 41.2 million in median trade value at the time of the deal. I believe he was set in the next update to just decrease slightly, I think, into like the 39 range off the top of my head. Um, in exchange, they gave up four prospects. Uh, the two very clear headliners are infielders Noel V. Marte at 36.5 and uh, is it Hector Arroyo at 22.8. Uh, Marte, a consensus top prospect in the game, top 20, 25. Uh, and Arroyo is a guy who's really shooting up some lists. He's, he's very, he's, his stock is rising. He's, he's performing very well this year. Edwin. It, and just to know, there, Edwin, there, yes. there were two Arroyos in the farm system of the Mariners and sometimes they got confused, but this one is Edwin. Yes, Edwin. Thank you. Um, in addition Two pitchers heading to Cincinnati in the deal are Levi Stout at 3.7 and Andrew Moore at 0 0.1. Uh, Moore is kind of a fast, uh, also a, a bit of a fast riser. You know, he's, he's still low in value because he is just a reliever, but he throws very hard and there's some people who really like him. 
And then Levi Stout, he's a likely reliever, uh, but he still has a chance to start. He could be kind of a back-end arm. So yeah, that's the four-player haul for the Reds, very clearly led by Marte and Arroyo. Uh, it ends up being 63.1 million in total value heading to the Reds in exchange for Castillo's 41.2. So this one was just barely accepted by the model, um, major overpay by the Mariners, and I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say that it was an overpay by the Mariners. I think that really lines up well with consensus. Uh, as soon as the names in this deal broke, everyone was saying, wow, the Reds did very, very well. That, that was really the first thought out of anybody's mouth. Um, so, so it makes sense that it would be seen as an overpay. But I, I want to make the point and the argument that just because a deal is an overpay doesn't mean it was a bad deal. Uh, the, the Mariners are in a unique spot here, given their lengthy playoff drought. It's been 20 years. That's a really long time, and they're they're over it. Uh, they see right now that they have a chance. They're in a wild card spot. There's plenty of teams on their heels. Uh, these wins that they get from Castillo matter more to them than any regular season wins that Castillo would have given the Yankees or the Dodgers or uh, many of the other teams that were kind of bidding for him. So it makes sense that the Mariners would be willing to pay a higher price than those teams. There was a report that uh, the Yankees immediately took Anthony Volpe off the table for Castillo, which makes sense. Uh, but the Reds liked this package better than a package centered around Oswald Peraza, which also makes sense. Peraza's value is lower than Marte's uh, by, by a decent margin. Uh, so it makes sense that the Mariners in their unique spot and given their roster construction and given... Uh, the young talent they've already graduated and some of the other young talent like Jared Kelnick, whose stock has fallen and isn't worth as much as he used to be. Um, it makes sense that they would decide to push some chips, push some chips in, make this move, pick up a year and a half of Castillo. Um, really the, the first thought that comes to mind when you look at it that way is it's almost a little bit like the Aroldis Chapman trade to the Cubs. Uh, it's obviously nowhere near as long of a drought as the Cubs had. And, it's way too early to assume that Castillo is going to win the Mariners a championship, but I think even if he just, you know, leads the team to the playoffs and they make at least one deep run in the playoffs in the next couple of years, it'll be remembered along those lines of it was an overpay, but it was an overpay that was worth it, and, and it could be eventually a win-win for the two teams. Uh, so that's kind of my immediate takeaways. I, I saw a lot of people upset, a lot of Mariners fans either upset with our values <laughs> or upset with the team for paying such a high price but I mean there's only one Luis Castillo on the market and he helps the Mariners in a way that he it, more in, in a sense than he helps a lot of other teams so it, it kind of makes sense to me yeah it makes sense to me too and you're right the the wins in the you know every win is the same in the standings right um, but as you get closer to October they do matter a little bit more it's slightly disproportional and of course, in October, they matter even more still um, because it's you're in and you're out. Uh, so now we've already baked in what we call the October bonus in Castillo's value. In other words, if you have him, you get him for free basically in the playoffs because the team doesn't pay them in October. The league does. So that's an extra sort of bonus. But that was baked in. We had not baked in that same number for 2023. He's under control through 2023 because, you know, we can't 
estimate exactly which team he would have gone to. So we're building our model for the aggregate. We knew that he would get traded to a contender this year, but that contender could fall off the map next year. So we can't really assume that that bonus would apply in 2023, although it probably will. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, you know, the starting pitching market, as we, as we are probably going to see, is very, it's very scarce to get an elite arm like Castillo. There's a lot more demand there than there is supply. And I just saw a tweet uh, where Nick Crawl, the GM of the Reds, said, you know, he had 10 to 15 teams asking him about Castillo. So, you know, he had all the leverage, right? And so he's just like, okay, give me your best bid. And then, you know, one after another, they outbid, and then Mariners had the highest bid. So good for him. You know, to some degree, that's a poker game. So, um, you know, I think they got a great deal. I don't think it's as crazy as the uh, Chapman deal at all, because that was a rental. Uh, and that was just the cherry on top. They needed to put them over the hump. And even, even I mean, they got over the hump, but even Cubs fans today saying, yeah, he wasn't that great for us. But they needed that deal to kind of, you know, get them there and then some. So I think there's a sense of urgency from Seattle that they're right there and they need to get get over that hump as well. So, um, so yeah, our, in our model, you know, most of the trade values, most of them line up pretty close it's a bell curve right and so they have kind of a tight relationship in that middle of the curve but then there's going to be some that are sort of a step or two out and then there's going to be some that are sort of two steps out and deviations and such so um this one was sort of a little bit out but it's not not uh you know not crazy is what i would say yeah i think that's a very good assessment um this our, our tweet of this trade really made the rounds on Twitter and, and got us some new attention and new followers, which is great. Uh, but it also got us a lot of questions and criticisms uh, that we thought we had dealt with a couple of years ago <laughs> and were kind of in the, in the rear view. Uh, but I guess new folks uh, bringing up the same kind of, kind of points. Um, the primary one being there were some people really upset, confused or, or critical that, uh, that Marte's value alone was so close to Castillo's. It's, you know, how can this guy who's, you know, never played in the upper minors, never seen a, a single major league pitch, how can he be almost as valuable as as a, a proven big league ace? Like, that's, your model's terrible. Wow, we, we saw a lot of those kind of responses. And the the primary answer is it's about team control. Castillo is only under team control for another year and a half, and it's, you know, for for a pitcher of his caliber, it's cheap. But compared to a prospect who's making nothing, um, it's it's more expensive team control for that year and a half. So yes, while he is proven, he's also really on a on a timer here. Um, and then he starts to get into his 30s and get expensive. So it's not even like he's a particularly attractive extension candidate from a from a trade value surplus standpoint, at least. Um, while Marte, on the other hand, he's a, a top prospect in the game, one of the best. You know, there were some concerns early in the year, but I think he's turned it back on and he's pretty firmly still in that top 20, 25, 30 range, if not even higher than that. He's a quality young player. He's still young for the level. He's making his way up the minor leagues and he still has six. Or if they gave his service time, seven years of team control remaining, which is huge for any team, but especially for a rebuilding team like the Reds, that's really going to emphasize that future team control a lot more than they will two years of, or a year and a half, excuse me, of Luis Castillo now. So, I mean, it's really not, it's not, I don't, I don't understand the thought process. It's, it's not even 
remotely out of line to say that prospects can be worth more than big leaguers. Like, you know, the, nobody's trading. The, the, the Mariners didn't trade before this season. They didn't trade Julio Rodriguez for two years of Luis Castillo. They, they would have laughed the Reds out of the room on that one, even though Rodriguez hadn't played a single game in AAA, let alone the big leagues. It, even though he hadn't made the big leagues, he was just a significantly more valuable player than two years of Luis Castillo. It's that it feels like a very kind of simple <laughs> explanation to me. Yeah. You know, the, the Yankees wouldn't trade Anthony Volpe in this trade because they feel that Anthony Volpe is more uh, more valuable than Luis Castillo, and our values agree, and I think a lot of uh, fans and media and front offices would agree as well. So I, I didn't quite understand that pushback um, to this one. I mean, there there is obviously a whole lot of uncertainty when you're talking about prospects. Um, every source is going to have kind of a different opinion on a guy. But when you are aggregating multiple sources the way we are, and they all kind of agree that Noel V. Marte is, is a valuable player, and seemingly the Reds strongly agree that he's a valuable player, if they want him to headline a deal for one of the top trade chips on the market, then it really seems like it lines up. It seems like it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome, you know, folks who haven't uh, visited our site before or heard our podcast or anything. Uh, but, you know, if you don't understand how we create our values or get to them, you know, there's an about section on our site that explains how we value major leaguers and how we value uh, prospects. And hopefully that will clear it up. There's a lot of established research, research, excuse me, research on prospect value. And then there's a lot of established sort of history and framework for how we value major leaguers and how these two match up. So that's all we're doing. You can read more about it there. Yep, I'll go ahead and link to that in the show notes. Make it a little bit easier for you all. <laughs> all right, I think that's uh, that's kind of our piece on Castillo. Um, I guess I guess one more note before we move on. Uh, how do you think this impacts the rest of the starting pitching market? Obviously, there's no Castillo out there. Uh, but Montas and Maley are similar in the sense that they're decent starting pitchers with a year and a half of team control remaining. Uh, there's a rental market that's not as strong as previous years, although we'll, we'll talk about Carlos Rodon and how he might change that. And there's kind of the more controllable arms like uh, Pablo Lopez and Tariq Skubal, where maybe they'll go, maybe they won't. But do you think this is kind of a unique situation where the Mariners – specifically were okay overpaying for Castillo and Castillo was such, you know, he was the prize of the deadline on the pitching end of it. So nobody else gets quite the same overpay or do you think it could have a market-wide effect? I think it's too simplistic to say, Oh, the market overpaid for Castillo. Therefore the market's going to overpay for Montas and Bailey and everybody else. I don't think that's the case. It's one data point. It's the top pitcher in the market. Um, and so, you know, it's not surprising that he would go for an overplay, overpay. Excuse me. So you can't assume that the next tier and the next tier would also be overpaid just because all starting pitchers would be overpaid. It's a little too early to say that. The second point is you'll notice that he went like four days before the deadline. The closer you get to the deadline, the, the, the leverage starts to go away from the selling team because like, okay, if I'm selling – uh, is my last chance, you know, okay, final offer. And if you're holding out still the, till then, you have to move at that point. You just have to take the final offer. Um, so um, so I don't think if, you know, if Montas and Maley are still around on Tuesday, it doesn't mean that there's going to be an overpay necessarily because of the starting pitching market being, you know, what it is. 
it could be that um, it just like, okay, we've got to make a deal. Last chance. Okay. Final offer. Here we go. And if it's not an overpay, it's going to be a fair deal. It's just, you know, that's, that's how it's going to net out. So I think it's going to be more like that. I wouldn't be surprised at an overpay, but the rumors I'm hearing don't necessarily suggest that. Um, but who knows? You know, rumors are rumors. Um, but anyway, my point is I'm not assuming that the whole starting picking market is inflated because of one transaction. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's it would be silly to say like, okay, that's the price for pitching now. Everybody needs to meet. You need to beat that price if you want Frankie Montas because he's the new number one guy. Like, that's silly. That's not how it works. I do think that kind of in a backwards way, you know, this the the fact that it wasn't overpay could be more indicative of I don't know if this is going to make any sense. <laughs> could be more indicative of just the high demand and low supply of pitching. And, you know, it's not that because Castillo was an overpay, Montas will be too. It's it's more along the lines of because the starting pitching market is so thin and everybody needs starters and there's such a premium placed on guys who can pitch in the playoffs, who can be your one or two or three. Um, because of that, the price was a little bit higher on Castillo and it could be trickling down a little bit higher on Montas, Meili, Lopez, uh, those other frontline type guys. And we already have some of that baked in, uh, both the market demand and the kind of frontline starter um, boost that they get for being a, a top guy that teams will pay a premium for. But uh, I, I could see just a little bit, th things being a little bit higher than uh, than we expected maybe uh, for, for those remaining guys. Because there are, you know, there's, eight teams that would love to have Frankie Montas right now and only one of them can get him and the teams that don't are going to have to settle for Maley or Paul Blackburn or Carlos Rodon potentially but there's a pretty steep fall off after kind of that tier yeah and that's why you're seeing in new players maybe poking around saying yeah maybe the Astros saying maybe we'll shop one of our guys like Arkady and the Marlins saying yeah maybe we'll shop Pablo Lopez Nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> you know, if it if the market was just Montas and Bailey, and then there's a huge gap down to like you know, um, you know Quintana or somebody or Jordan Lyles, yeah, then that would mean okay, I gotta have Montas and Bailey because I don't want any one of those other guys. So, but then, but now the market is saying it's like it's a free market capitalist thing. It's like okay, well there's demand, so I'm gonna push some supply in. So the Astros are saying okay, let's see what Arkady can get and let's see what Lopez can get. And so the market tends to normalize a little bit that way, which will neutralize a little bit of that supply and demand imbalance. Absolutely. We're seeing that a lot. I think there is still kind of a scenario where there's there's going to be more arms available on that market. And those arms are obviously much, much preferred over, like you said, a Jordan Lyles or Quintana. Uh, but they're also still not quite in that sweet spot that Montas and Maley are where they're and, and Rodon. I'll, I'll loop him in here. We'll talk more about the Giants a little bit later. Um, but Urquidy, you know, he's not as proven. He's got the team control. Same kind of thing with Plesak. He's been kind of up and down. He's he's not regarded as as good of a pitcher as those two guys or yeah, three guys, uh, Montas, Maley, Rodon. And then Pablo Lopez is going to cost the farm. He, he's going to be really expensive. So within that mid range that teams are more willing and inclined to trade for at the deadline you know they meet that middle round of they're not going to cost all of our prospects but also they're going to make a meaningful impact for this year and next uh, i think montas and Maley are still pretty uniquely positioned 
Okay, last couple deals here. Uh, very quickly, Cubs uh, traded Chris Martin, uh, right-handed reliever, to the Dodgers. Martin was at 0.5 million in median trade value. In exchange, the Dodgers sent back utility man Zach McKinstry, who we had at zero. Uh, very just, you know, on the margins type move. Chris Martin's an interesting reliever, throws a lot of strikes, misses a lot of bats. He's given up a few home runs, but other than that, he's he's a pretty solid middle to back end arm and, and the Dodgers just need some more bullpen depth. So makes all the sense in the world for them. Cubs get to take a chance on a somewhat interesting utility guy who's figured it out at AAA, but uh, hasn't quite translated it to the big leagues yet. I don't think there's too much else to say there. Do you? No, I'm just a little bit surprised the Cubs didn't go for like a low-level lottery ticket prospect instead. I mean, McKinstry is just kind of a bench guy, and he probably will just stay a bench guy, but I could be wrong. Maybe they give him some more playing time, and he, you know, raises his value a little bit, but there's not much ceiling there. Yeah, it's weird. You get the sense that the Cubs are trying to shorten their rebuild a little bit, you know, with things like the the Stroman signing and, you know, they hung on to Wilson Contreras last deadline and last off season. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they aren't as in it for the long haul, but then on the other hand, they, when they traded you Darvish, they got a bunch of teenagers back. So it's, it's kind of, it's hard to, hard to put a finger on what the Cubs are doing right now. I, I agree with that assessment. Yeah. I think um, they're trying to split the different signings, Suzuki and Stroman. They're like, they need to put, you know, fans in the seats at Wrigley. Right. Um, at the same time, I think they are trying to prioritize the rebuild. Uh, but this one, you know, whatever, it's fine. I'm not going to make much of a argument over zero to zero point five. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, one, a, a couple more that we want to at least touch on here. Uh, the Philadelphia Phillies added infielder Edmundo Sosa, who we had at six point six million. In exchange, uh, they sent the Cardinals' left-handed pitcher Jojo Romero, who we had at zero. So, big gap there, obviously. Um, this one was accepted by the model, again, just barely as a major overpay by the Phillies. Uh, but this was more of a manual miss on, on our part. Uh, we missed a manual adjustment that needed to be implemented for Sosa. Um, the, the model can have a tendency at times to overvalue these glove first middle infielders because they provide wins above replacement and they project decently in that category, but teams don't pay as much for that type. You know, they can find a teams can find a glove first middle infielder pretty much anywhere for free. I mean, you see it in this deal. All it cost the Phillies was kind of a flamed out prospect who's had some injury issues and hasn't done anything really in the upper minors or at the big league level. That, that's what Romero is for, for the Cardinals. He's kind of just a depth lefty bullpen arm. And that's all it cost the Phillies to get this glove first guy in Sosa. So that that's pretty indicative of how teams value uh, glove first, no bat middle infielders. And so we, we have a manual adjustment in place to account for that within the model. And uh, we didn't, it, he, uh, Sosa should have been discounted further because of that reason. He was properly discounted uh, as he's out of options, which is <laughs> kind of a, kind of a death knell if you're both of those guys at once. Um, if you're if you're you have no bat glove only and you can't be options, you're not really you know flexible depth. You're you're just stuck on the roster as as a glove. Uh, that's that's kind of the kiss of death for trade value there. And so we did have his uh, option status properly adjusted, uh, 
but didn't quite get his defensive adjustment all or his positional adjustment all the way there. Yeah, so we've seen enough data points on this now where it needs to be institutionalized in the model. A light hitting infielder needs to be downgraded, and we've done it for second baseman a little bit more so. The fact that he was more primarily a shortstop gave us some pause, I think, and now we see it's happening with shortstops as well. Like Orlando Arcia, Orlando Arcia comes to mind when the Brewers traded him to the Braves last year. They didn't get much back. And at the time, I was scratching my head a little bit. Why was that? Well, okay, he's a light-hitting, you know, glove-first infielder. And, you know, and we've seen many instances of this where guys get DFA'd because they're light-hitting middle infielders, and they're a diamond a dozen. So we've seen enough data points now. We know we got to change that in the models. That's on us. And um, so, you know, the, in, one, in one, you know, one point of defense, you know, uh, Sosa did put up 1.8 F4 last year, and he did hit over 100 WRC+, which is why it wasn't an obvious case. We know he's having a terrible season this year, but the model doesn't just meet, weigh this year. It weighs this year a little bit more heavily as the year goes on, as we've said. But it's going to factor in, hey, he was 1.8 F4 last year, and he hit over, he's a slightly above average hitter. So that means that, that that's where the value came from. And so it's it's a little bit tricky uh, because, like, is that the real Sosa or is this the real Sosa? So, you know, but anyway, lesson learned. We got to discount a little bit more for that profile. Yeah. And one other kind of quirk that led to this one is we don't, you know, we don't specifically run the model based off minor league numbers. And that's kind of their prospect number. We, we base it off of prospect valuations, which are are a bit fungible and, and kind of adjust based on different reasons. But basically what I'm getting to, at here is he obviously never really hit much in the minor leagues. I, I think it's looking like his last full season of an above average batting line was 2015. And that was in rookie ball. <laughs> so since then, it's okay, been a pretty, all right. a pretty, no, 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 I'm trying to explain here. I'm not, I'm not arguing against your point at all. <laughs> uh, I'm saying that the, the model doesn't see that. It sees, okay, he's a decently regarded prospect. It doesn't know why. It doesn't know because it was because of his glove or or what it was. You know, uh, he's a 40 FV on fan graphs. That's, you know, th there's different types of 40 future yeah, values. Yeah. There's this glove first profile or there's a power first profile with no glove. And, and they're both a 40. And, and that's all the model sees, that it's a 40. And so it doesn't see the track record of of subpar hitting in the minor leagues so all it sees is okay he's a he was a 40 future value and and you're right he posted 1.8 war 104 wrc plus in the big leagues as a 25 year old who plays a premium position that's that has some value right and that, that's what the model sees so so just kind of explaining that end of it and kind of why we have to make those manual adjustments for these cases and and yeah we we missed this one just a little bit all right, last trade for us to get to this week it will be the D-backs traded David Peralta to the Rays. Uh, it surprised me just a little bit. I've said on previous episodes that I didn't think they would trade him, but um, I've, I've, <laughs> I've had it explained to me by a, a D-backs uh, D -backs fan friend in my life that uh, I'll get to that in a second. But Rays picked up David Peralta, had him at $0.6 million. Uh, in exchange, they sent the Diamondbacks young catcher uh, Christian Serda at $0.3 million. Uh, so the Rays have been absolutely ravaged by injuries this year. They just lost both Kevin Kiermeyer and Mike Zunino for the rest of the season. Uh, they obviously already acquired Christian Bethencourt 
uh, who can help them out behind the plate. But they're also, I'm pretty sure Francisco Mejia is also injured right now. Um, so they may also look to add more depth at catcher. But this is kind of one of their first outfield depth type moves. It barely costs them anything. Uh, just a, a lower minors catcher, you know, org depth slash uh, lottery ticket type guy in Serda. And they get a pretty okay bat. I mean, I think I might have written off David Peralta a little bit too much earlier this season. He's obviously not the guy he once was. He's only, he's going to be 35 in a couple weeks. He's just a rental. He's making a little bit of money. So it, obvious reasons he didn't have much value. And, and this deal was fair for just a lottery ticket. Uh, but he has a 110 WRC plus this year. He's been a solid bat and, and not a horrible defender in a corner outfield spot. So he adds some depth, adds some length to that raised lineup. Um, uh, they, they don't have a, a ton from the left side right now with all of their injuries. Uh, you know, Franco's out, Kiermaier, uh, et cetera. So he, he helps lengthen them out that way. And like I said, he costs them nothing. They still have all their prospect resources if they want a good starting pitcher, if they want to talk to the A's about Loriano or Murphy or Montas or whoever, uh, they still have tons of options. So I, I like this a lot as a move for them. From the D-back side of it, they're saving about $3 million down the stretch, which isn't nothing, and they get a little lottery ticket here. Uh, but I think a larger motivator was, yes, Peralta is a fan favorite. He's been a career D-back. Uh, he's also never really had an extended postseason run because they've been the D-backs during that span. <laughs> No, no hate. I've I've been watching most of it. Um, so he, he's never made it beyond, I believe, the division series uh, in his career. And so this gives him a real chance at that. And that's good for him as he kind of winds down what was a, a cool and interesting career. He was a former pitcher converted into an above average outfielder. I think he might have been an all star once or twice. So uh, he's a fun story. And I, I like him as a nice cheap pickup for the race. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. Um I, you know, he obviously has a great story and a fan favorite in Arizona, but his time is about to end, you know, and he's well into his 30s. So it's not like, you know, you're going to have him for 10 years, you know, it's pretty much the end of his road. So, you know, you can see it. it's a business, but, you know, you can see it from that perspective. All right. I have um, just a little tidbit of uh, of trade news that just came down the wire. Cubs and Giants are discussing a trade in which infielder Dixon Machado, 796 OPS at AAA Iowa, would end up in San Francisco. That's from John Morosi. So probably seems like a, <laughs> uh, a little depth move. The, the, the Giants have also been ravaged by injuries. We'll talk about them more later, like I said. Uh, but just last night, they were playing Jason Vossler at shortstop to try and hang on to a lead because Tyro oh, Estrada went on the concussion list and Brandon Crawford's hurt. And I think there's been some other... Uh, middle infield injuries as well so probably just going to be a little cash consideration whatever type deal and you know the, the cubs aren't going to be trading for <laughs> carlos rodon and if they are they're not using uh dixon machado to do it but i thought i'd uh, i've been checking twitter throughout this recording just to make sure we don't miss anything and so i thought i'd provide oh, that yeah. little tidbit there you go thank you no we actually you know we actually took dixon machado off out of our system because it, I think he went to play in Asia a couple of years ago and he bounced around. I'm not sure where he ended up, but, um, but clearly he's back in America and, you know, in a farm system, there's no value there. So it's not going to matter anyway, because <laughs> he hasn't played the major leagues in several years. And he was even when he did, it was very marginal. So it's just a depth move. Yep, absolutely. He was actually very good overseas, but uh, yeah, still, still just kind of a depth guy here. It seems. 
Okay, so that's all of the actual trade news from the week, and I'll, I'll keep you updated on the, the Dixon Machado blockbuster as it develops. But uh, now let's get into just a couple nuggets of uh, other hard news, and then we can get into some of the rumors. Uh, first, just briefly wanted to touch on, uh, we've discussed a couple times in the past, the international draft issue, which is tied to the qualifying offer issue. Uh, basically, in order to get the CBA done, uh, this season and, and, and the lockout, uh, the union and the league agreed that they would discuss the possibility of an international draft throughout the season. And if they could come to an agreement on a, on a format for the draft, they would abolish the qualifying offer for free agents. That was kind of, those are the two that were kind of on the table. Um, and, and they set themselves a July 25th deadline. That deadline came and passed and they were not able to come to an agreement. So at least for now, the qualifying offer is back. Um, it's not going to have any significant impact on trade values. Uh, I'll, I'll let John get a little bit deeper into that uh, specific aspect of it. Um, but yeah, it, at any time, part part of the reason that it's not going to have a massive impact is that we don't know exactly what the league and union are planning here. We don't know if they're going to reconvene on this issue in the off season. We don't know if they're going to give it a year, year and a half. We don't know if they're going to just table it and leave it for the next CBA to sort out. Um, both the international drafting and the qualifying offer system. So since we don't know, it, it's probably fair to say that front offices don't know either. Um, we, we kind of realized they were operating under the assumption last off season that there wouldn't be a qualifying offer, even though, again, they didn't know for sure, but just to be safe, they were operating as if there wouldn't be. And that's why uh, a couple of guys like Chris Bassett is the, is the first example to come to mind. He went for a little bit less than his value because his value included the potential draft pick bonus of the qualifying offer uh, and teams weren't sh certain of that possibility at the time. There, there was a lot of doubt. And so it's, it's kind of the same thing here where teams don't know if and when the qualifying offer will come or go. And so they're probably going to act just as they were kind of. So is there anything else you want to add to that? So if you have control of a guy and it's their last year at the end of that service time, let's pretend for example, the Mariners, you know, they're going to have, they just got Luis Castillo. So let's pretend it's the end of 2023 and you've just completed, you know, the final year of service time with Luis Castillo. At that point, you know, he can elect to become a free agent. You can try to extend him or you can give him a qualifying offer, which has been around 18, 19 million. Typically it means basically you have to pay him this offer for one year. Inflation is a little bit of a factor, so let's call it 20 by the end of 2023. So the Mariners could say, okay, Luis, we'll give you a qualifying offer. We'll pay you $20 million for the year 2024. And he'll probably say, no, no thank you, because I'm worth more than that. And he'd probably be right. In which case, the Mariners say, okay, fine. And then he goes off and signs with somebody else. And in, in return for that, they get a draft pick. Now, it depends on which team assigns him. It's either going to be at the end of the first round or the end of the second round, which is complicated, I know. But there's a little bit of value to that draft pick. And so that matters a little bit if you think work backwards to his trade value because if the Mariners would be thinking, okay, well, if we don't sign him, we'll at least get a draft pick. Um, and so teams will sometimes bake that into the trade value calculation. Um, now, you know, it really is only an issue in the, in the off season because the other rule is, if, he's, if the player is traded in the middle of the season, he can't be issued a qualifying offer. So the value of that draft pick disappears. So guys who are being traded, rental guys in particular, for example, Wilson Contreras, is going to get traded most likely in the next two days. And so whoever gets him will not be able to issue that qualifying offer. 
However, the Cubs could say, no, we don't want to trade him. We'll issue him a qualifying offer, and then he'll probably turn it down and we'll get a draft pick. So they still have that option. That gives them a little bit of a floor. The draft pick is you know, probably not going to be worth much because if it's to a contender, I think it's the end of the second round. There's variables there, but anyway. But he's probably not worth enough to give – uh, you know, like a $19, $20 million qualifying offer too. Maybe he's right on the borderline. So they probably will get more by trading him now. We think he would generate a return of about nine point, call it $10 million. Uh, and that's worth a lot more than the draft pick that they would get. So they're probably going to trade him instead of waiting. So <clears throat> that's how it plays with the trade value. Um, you know, we used to do sort of a probabilistic model where it's like, you know, what's the chances they'll trade him versus what's the chances they won't trade him and get a qualifying offer draft pick. And, you know, that played into it a little bit with guys like Chris Bryant last year. Uh, inevitably, almost every team opted for the trade route because they got more value out of it. So anyway, we're going back to that. Um, it's not really a factor at this deadline. It might be a little bit of a factor next year or the in this next offseason. Right, thank you. Very well explained. Okay, the Rockies did a Rockies, <laughs> and I, I somewhat predicted this in my trade deadline primer article. Uh, rather than having Daniel Bard as kind of a lock to be traded, I had him as a, a, a maybe, as, as it depends. And all it depended on was whether the Rockies did a Rockies, and, and they did. They went ahead and extended their 37-year-old closer rather than trading him for prospects. And I mean... There, there's some debate you can have here over, you know, he was only worth, I think it was like three, three or four million in surplus uh, before the extension. And so, yeah, that's really not going to get you a ton in terms of prospects. Uh, so if it's not going to just totally change the, the organization, if it's, if it's more likely than not just going to get you a couple guys who flame out in a ball, then why not hang on to the guy? He's a great story. He clearly loves it in Colorado and, and you know he, he seems like a bit of a fan favorite and it's hard to get pitchers to come to Colorado so hang on to him um, and then there's the flip side of the coin where you know you never know which trade is going to end up being the Josh Fields for Jordan Alvarez and the good organizations make those trades when they can and take the chances on the lottery tickets because eventually one of those lottery tickets are going to hit and it's going to really help your franchise on the other end of the rebuild uh, but I guess the problem here is that the Rockies don't think they're rebuilding. So uh, anyway, <laughs> it, it's a two-year, $19 million-ish. Uh, I don't think we have exact figures yet, but uh, Mark Feinzand of MLB.com says about $19 million. Uh, for the two years for Daniel Bard, uh, it's going to be his age 38 and 39 seasons, which is uh, it's a choice. <laughs> but he, he has been very good and very effective in Colorado, to, despite the environment and despite his... Uh, his own history of struggles. He's found a home there. And so happy for him, for sure. It's a great story being able to make a career out of, out of his, his history and what happened. It formerly had the yips and, and just couldn't, couldn't pitch at all. And now he's one of the better relievers in the game. It's, it's impressive, but uh, yeah, Rocky's process continues to befuddle. It does. And um, you know, I know they're becoming the butt of jokes and the junk that it's getting old, but you know, it's, it's warranted because they just are not playing the same game that everybody else is playing. Um, I saw a really interesting Twitter thread from a guy who seemed to know what he was talking about. His whole theory was 
you know, the Rockies are playing a different game because they value a different thing. We said what they value is their culture. Like, you know, other teams are valuing winning and efficiencies and such. They're valuing culture. Like, like you know, if you think about it, they're kind of on an island in themselves in the middle of the mountains there. And they've got a fan base that's really good. They come to the games and they're having a good time. And so I've sort of theorized that they're more about entertainment than than winning. Um, and, but it's sort of along the same lines. So guys who fit their culture, who they like, uh, they're going to keep regardless of any other thought or any other circumstance. They're just keeping the guys that they like. If a guy says, hey, no, I want to try to win, like Nolan Arenado, they're like, oh, you're going against our culture. You're making us mad. Okay, off you go. I mean, it's a little simplistic, but that was the gist of this guy's theory. Um, so I, there may be something to that because at least it would explain why they're acting so differently than everybody else. Yeah, I don't know if this is the tweet you were referring to. It seems a little bit more snarky than the way you put it, but it's a funny one from David Roth, who said, do not try to parse what the Rockies are doing now or ever as if they were baseball-related decisions. They are (laughs) just trying to hang out with the guys they like, and that is prioritized above any other consideration. Where you see a roster, they see a guest list. I like it. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, no, that's (laughs) that's a very similar tweet. There's this other tweet I saw. It was like a whole like series of tweets about the culture, but basically making the same point, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's an interesting space to operate in. They obviously have the great ballpark, and they almost have a whole section of the United States to themselves in a way. They're kind of geographically isolated a bit, Um, and they have a decent fan base who comes out to games and enjoys it. Uh, I just think uh, they might enjoy it even more if their team could win and uh, if their their front office could make the moves to execute that. But I uh, I guess that's just my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so you know, back to our point, they're not trading anybody. Even their GM said, uh, "Nah, we're good. <laughs> like, I got nobody to trade anyway. Nobody really wants our players. You know, who are they trading?" And so, yeah, it's not a really issue anymore. And Bard was really the only guy I could have seen. Um, you know, maybe CJ Crone, but they seem to like him there, so he's not going anywhere. So, you know, they're not trading anybody. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's been a little bit of buzz about Alex Colomay. Not buzz in the sense of teams are lining up to get him, but buzz in the sense that they would move him. Um, so Colomay, Chad Cool. Uh, side note, I, I have I've been a, a baseball fan a long time, and and I've known of Chad Cool for a long time. But it's been until very recently when I mentioned him to a non-baseball fan that I realized that his name is Chad Cool, like like the <laughs> word cool. That never registered to me. And it's it's insane, and we don't talk about it enough. Anyway, I thought it was cool. <laughs> like there was a W sort of silently in the middle of that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's fun if it's Chad Cool. I'm 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 keeping it. <laughs> um, uh, Jose Iglesias is another one where he, again he's not going to get much, and he seems like he could be another one of those Rockies culture type guys. We like having him to stick him at shortstop, whatever. So. Yeah, you're right. I don't expect a whole lot of activity there. I expect them to keep just kind of doing their thing. You be you, Rockies. Yeah. Last one. Uh, this isn't finalized exactly, but uh, it's it's getting there, and it's been talked about for a few weeks, and it makes a lot of sense. Padres are nearing an extension with Joe Musgrove, a very good starting pitcher. It's a five-year deal, roughly $100 million, uh, which seems somewhat in line with uh, with recent of those, you know, number two-ish uh, free agent deals for starting pitchers. I'm thinking maybe uh, mainly uh, for Robbie Ray and uh, and Kevin Gossman this last uh, 
free agent cycle. Uh, Musgrove is somewhat in that territory. You could you can make arguments whether he's better or worse, but he's also a San Diego guy, and he's had a great time there. He's he's been a great pitcher for them. He threw their first no hitter, um, and, and so a, a bit of a hometown discount, especially considering the kind of salary budget constraints that the Padres have right now. It makes some sense. So it's it's inoffensive. He gets a good amount of money here. He's a good pitcher. Padres lock him up. They have a lot of uh, uncertainty in their rotation in future years. They're going to lose guys like Snell and Darvish, and Darvish is only getting older. Uh, they're losing Clevenger and Manaya, uh, and their farm is nowhere near what it once was. So it, it's good for them to lock in some certainty here. And I think of that bunch, he's he's the right guy to commit to. Yep. No, I mean, as a San Diego native, I mean, I will say I've always liked him and our model has always liked him, perhaps more than public perception has. Like, he looks like a really good pitcher and his stats belie that. And so, remember when he was traded from Pittsburgh, it was like, that's all they got for him? He's better than that, right? And so, it turned out he is better than that. And now they want to pay him for it. So, good for them. Yep. And I, I guess the only, the only like trade spin that I can apply to this. And it's it's actually a, a great transition into what we're talking next is I was kind of musing on Juan Soto earlier today, you know, as as you do, <laughs> as as I'm sure we've been doing every day for the last couple of weeks, just, you know, Juan Soto pops into my mind. Um, and, and it seems like the, the kind of clear front runners are the Cardinals, Padres and Dodgers. Those are the names that keep coming up. There's there's plenty of others that have been on the periphery, the Rangers, uh, the Mets, uh, a few other teams, but Cardinals, Padres, Dodgers seem like kind of the big 3 right now and the Padres, we've talked about it at length, their kind of financial constraints uh, and and how they're up against the luxury tax and can they really pull off a deal for Soto with how expensive he's going to be and, you know, they might need to take Corbin back in a deal because their farm is so depleted. Can they really afford that? And so I've been thinking about that. And I guess my kind of conclusion is obviously it, it depends on what ownership's going to approve. And, and we don't really have a great sense of that. We're in uncharted territory here because they've never spent to this level before. And so we don't know how long they're going to continue spending at this level and we don't know how far past this level they're allowed to spend so that's that, that's the big question mark in all of this we we don't know any of that behind the scenes type stuff but there is kind of this theory and we've seen it with the yankees in recent years we've seen it with the dodgers we just saw it with the phillies where if you're gonna go past the luxury tax just blow past it because you know, the, the, there's there's the financial implications, which aren't that severe until you get into the really upper threshold. You know, it's, it's a percentage-based tax, but it's only a tax on your overage. So I, I believe, I could be very wrong on this. I don't know all these numbers off the top of my head. But for the for the first chunk, the first like tier of the luxury tax, um, it, it's something like 25% of all dollars you spend over that amount. And I think it's like a 25 or $30 million tier. So that's really not that much money you're paying in extra tax. Um, obviously more severe are the draft pick implications. Uh, if you're, if you're over the tax in, uh, consecutive years, uh, but there's, there's ways around that. And, and just naturally your payrolls will kind of ebb and flow. And so you could say, okay, I'm fine going over way over for these next two years. And I just know down the road, I'm really going to have to cut salary and get under for that third year. So I don't get the, so I don't get penalized for it in the draft. So uh, where I'm getting at is there's no reason to sign 
Joe Blow middle reliever for $5 million to push you over the luxury tax. If you're going to go over, and I don't know if the Padres are, but if they're willing to go over at all, you got to go over with a big splash. And kind of where I'm getting at is is Musgrove is at at 20 million a year. It's it's a significant contract. You know, they have Will Myers coming off the books, but they have some other guys getting raises and they have some guys they're going to need to replace. So they're not it's not looking like their salary's going down anytime soon. And so I don't know, maybe I'm seeing an argument here for them pulling the trigger on a Soto Corbin kind of thing and sorting out the money later. (laughs) I I guess that's kind of where I'm getting with this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, you never count out Preller because he's a riverboat gambler and he'll go for it and he'll surprise you. Uh, He's aggressive. So that part I get. Um, So I wouldn't put, put it past him to just blow through it. Um, but you know, there's another part, and this is kind of segue in, into what would a package look like from San Diego for for Soto. I mean, it's really stretching to get there because their their farm has been depleted, but they have some pop up guys that you know they could be included. So you can sort of do the math and say, okay, Abrams Gore, that's about eighty ish. Abrams has declined a little bit. Gore has declined a little bit because of the arm issue. That's eighty ish. Hassel's close to forty. That's one hundred twenty. Now, if you're, we have Soto at 165, so it's a 45 million dollar gap. So you can pick up Corbin's money; it's like minus 54. You could also throw in Myers, going the other way, just to, you know, okay. So now you're getting, now that's it, right? Or if you don't do that, if you don't take Corbin, you could throw in Wood and Merrill, and that's like another 40-ish, and you could almost get there. Maybe you throw in one more guy like a Morayhan, and you say, okay, we'll call it even. That's six guys. That you know, you really have depleted everything from your farm and your two young major leaguers for one guy. I could see them doing that because it's Preller, uh, but that is really a stretch. Or it's a lot easier from a math perspective to see him taking on Corbin. So to your point, the only issue is, you know, can they go over the luxury tax and pay that penalty? You know, I think the owner is a gamer as well because he's been given the green light to Preller to go over once before. Um, and probably for Soto, he would say, all right, we're all in. So I could see them doing that. So then the other question is, do the Nats do that? You know, is it more important to them to get rid of Corbin than it is to get, you know, young talent? Um, and then that's, we've talked about this before, the whole angle of the sale comes into play. So it's very complicated, very interesting. I, I'm still struggling with the Padres being the front runner, though. I think it's a lot easier for the Cardinals to do it. Yeah, I don't know if I'm calling the Padres the front runner here. No, I don't I, think you are. I'm thinking yeah. other media people are. Gotcha. <laughs> cool. Um, the the other just consideration I have is what is the Padres' window? Because obviously they have, you know, their core right now is Tatis. I haven't seen him much this year, but he's incredible. He's young. He's around forever, extended. He, he's there. And Machado, who's not getting any younger. He's into his 30s now, I believe. Um and he's still an excellent player, but at some point, father time's going to come for him. But beyond that, like I said, they got that rotation that's that's about to uh, about to really change, and really only Musgrove is locked up long term now. Uh, they got some kind of additional, you know, Jake Cronenworth is okay, but he's not he's no superstar. Trent Grisham is having an awful year. They got those kind of like complementary pieces around the diamond, uh, but it feels like. 
it's a time for them to push chips in for the next couple years because even you know if they sat on their hands and just you know spent money and and made some of these smaller deals to you know replenish the rotation and add some small bats you know the Josh Bells or or whoever every year if they did that in the in the hopes of waiting until CJ Abrams and Robert Hassel and James Wood are stars i i think by that point you're looking at I don't know what in the rotation. You're probably near the end of Musgrove's tenure and he's into his mid thirties. You're looking at a mid to late thirties, Manny Machado and, and who knows what else. And, and it's still an expensive team. So I, I could see an argument for, you know, money aside, just, just looking at kind of the baseball window that they have. I could see an argument for rather than wait for some of these prospects to develop, go get Juan freaking Soto and put him in the same lineup as Fernando Tatis Jr. That's, exciting and and i don't think they're in a position right now where they can exactly i mean i'll never doubt aj preller and he's clearly got an eye for young talent and he knows how to identify and develop it uh but just given the state that their farm and their team and their budget are right now i don't really see an argument for them at this stage becoming a dodgers you know just repetitive contender and churning you know 15 to 20 million dollar trade value prospects out of their farm system like they're nothing (laughs) that's not what i'm seeing from them right now and so if if that's not what you're seeing would you rather just kind of hang around in this wild card spot for the next few years and then fizzle out or do you push everything in and actually try and catch up to the dodgers for the next couple years i i think there's a pretty strong argument for the latter there yeah I mean, they do have a little bit of Dodgers NB2, given their location geographically, and I think that's a factor. And, you know, just getting over that hump. I mean, they, you know, it took them a while to get here. And, you know, if you look at roster resource, there's still some holes in that lineup. So you can definitely see Soto helping, and obviously Tatis will help when he comes back. So, you know, they're not quite good enough yet, and they're, you know, their record sort of shows they're, you know, an above 500 team, but they're not blowing out, you know, teams like, like a like a great team is so they got some steps to do so you can see it from a competitive standpoint no problem it's just like that's really stretching if they're going to try to make the deal one way or the other yeah yeah that's the biggest question of it um last couple notes on soto uh we talked cardinals a little bit there was a good piece by katie Wu in the athletic Uh, that'll be linked as well of just kind of the the Cardinals question with Juan Soto and whether it works or whether it doesn't. And, and there's a lot of reasons it does make sense and they are a good fit for him. You know, they could they could get it done without totally obliterating their farm system. And that's not a thing a lot of teams can say. And that's because they have a couple of really quality young outfielders. Dylan Carlson is probably the most attractive to the Nationals because he's younger and has more team control. But, you know, maybe they consider Tyler O'Neill. Um, and if you just, if you're giving up Carlson, you don't have to give up your next top six prospects as well. You can give up, you know, you can pick and choose a little bit and you're still going to give up a lot of talent in that deal, but you're going to, it's not going to hurt you as much as it would hurt the Padres where they have to just go one, two, three, four, five, six. Congratulations. You're Washington nationals. (laughs) Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's kind of the Corbin angle of it where he's been atrocious this year, but the Cardinals have their devil magic and and maybe they could get him to at least be a league average arm. And if you have him as a league average arm in front of that defense, that's pretty valuable and they need all the pitching they can get. And even if he's 
a little below average. He's at least an innings eater, and they need that as well. So there's that argument to it. And so there's a lot of things that line up well with the Cardinals, and you've argued in their favor for this Soto race multiple times. But then there's the longer-term financial issues where they already have Goldschmidt and Arnado locked up to lengthy, expensive contracts. Um, as well as Arnado is playing right now, he still doesn't look like he's going to opt out of that contract. I, I guess that could change, but it, it seems more likely than not that he sticks in it. Uh, so you still have, you already have those two locked up, and you're talking about adding Corbin and all of his money, or at least some of his money. And then Soto, are you just picking him up for the two and a half years? If so, he's still going to be kind of expensive, and he's still going to push that Cardinals payroll. And the Cardinals are not a large market team. They're kind of a mid-market team that can act like one sometimes because of their front office and their development and their fan base. But are you are you just going to stick around, keep him sticking around for a couple of years, or are you going to actually try to extend him, Into which at which point you're really into unprecedented territory for any team, but especially for more of a mid-market team like the Cardinals? So I think there's, there's pros and cons to it for them for sure, which I think is part of why I'm still, on the whole, not expecting a Juan Soto trade in the next couple of days. I still think there's just so many factors in it for each team, you know, whether it's the Nationals or or the team that would be acquiring Soto. Uh, just too many things going in each direction that I think would be a lot easier in the offseason to sort out when you have a little bit more time and, and you can kind of have those lengthy discussions with your ownership about what direction you're taking the team in and taking the, the payroll in. Um, I think it makes more sense in the offseason, but yeah, there's just, there's just questions for everyone, and, and even for the Cardinals, who I would probably agree are, are one of the top, if not the top, fit for him. Yeah, so a couple points. Um, Kyle Glazer of Baseball America you know, did a really interesting uh, research piece a few days ago, looking back at historic trades, and I'm like, okay, the question he was trying to answer was, if you trade a big star and you get prospects back, who wins the deal? And his conclusion was that the team getting the big star always wins the deal because the prospects usually don't amount to all that much, whereas the big star is bankable. You know, you pretty much get what you get from him. And so his conclusion was, if you're the Nationals, you want... But the one exception, I should say, was if they got a young uh, major league player back, at least one because that major league player tends to go on to some success. And so the deals that turned out to be even instead of lopsided were the ones that included at least one major league level player. And so if you look back on, say, the Mookie Betts trade, where Boston got Verdugo back, you start to think, okay, that makes sense. So if you're the Nationals, it makes sense to talk to the Cardinals because who fits that bill? You know, you've got, you've got Carlson, you've got Nolan Gorman, who's already starting to establish himself. And, you know, Libertori is starting to establish a little bit, although he's got some work to do. Um, so you got a, your choice of, a, you know, a couple of guys there. You can throw in Yepes a little bit if you want to, too, who are sort of already playing at the major league level and maybe at least would make that deal even from your perspective. And then you throw in a couple of other prospects who are, you know, who knows. Um, but you don't want it to be all prospects. And so, for example, the the Marlins traded Christian Yelich with multiple team-friendly years of control, got four prospects back who were highly rated at the time. They all busted. They got nothing. And so, I mean, that's like a worst-case scenario. You know, the A's traded Donaldson, three and a half years of him, you know, led by a prospect, Barreto, who busted, and the other guys didn't turn out so well either. So, 
you know, you can kind of say, yeah, it's dicey to trade a big star, but you got to be very careful the package package you're getting back. So if you, if you compare packages, the Cardinals one, presumably it's going it to include at least a Carlson or a Gorman as the lead piece, is going to be more attractive from that point of view than a Padres one, which is, you know, two guys who may be at the major league level but are struggling in Abrams and Gore. Um, and then some prospects or the Dodgers are probably just offering prospects. I'm not sure who they could offer that has some established major league time, maybe Gavin Lux. Um, but you know, the Cardinals one is a little bit more bankable from their point of view. And Oh, by the way, we see that the, you know, the big shots from each team are hanging out and being chummy this week because the Cardinals are in town in Washington playing the nationals and the GMs are talking. So that's fueling some rumors as well. Um, last point. Um, I was on a podcast with a couple of guys from St. Louis yesterday, and I asked them, hey, if you traded for Soto, what are your chances, you think, of the team extending them? And, you know, and they they sort of thought about it and said, okay, well, if we sort of flatten it out over a long period of time, I could see it doing, I could see it being doable. Like, if you, if you imagine the AAV is like in the mid-30s, like 35-ish, 37, over, you know, 12, 13, 14 years, they could probably afford that. They can't afford a $40 million AAV, but a 35 ish one, they could probably do that. They're doing it with Arenado right now, so why not? You know, And Arenado's getting older, and Goldschmidt's contract is going to expire at some point. So you know, that's your next big contract. So I'm squinting a little bit from that point of view, but I can kind of see it. I think that's just the thing that I was getting at, where no matter what team and what scenario you're talking, you do just have to squint. And I mean... Part of that's because a player like Soto has really never been traded, at least not in like modern history. A player this good and young and valuable and set to be this expensive. <laughs> that's never really happened before. I guess maybe we can talk about Alex Rodriguez a bit, but that's a very different situation. Um, so I guess that's why you just kind of have to squint because there really just isn't any precedent for making this work. But I don't know. I'm... I'll, I'll say it again. I just think it. You, you wait to the off season. Dylan Carlson is still going to be on the table in the off season if he's a guy you like as the Nationals. But it just gives everybody more time to gather their thoughts and, <laughs> and get their kind of organizations in line and and really decide what they're ready for. Um, and who knows? Maybe by the off season, ownership has changed and they're willing to hand blanks uh, Juan Soto the blank check. Or by the off season, you've made Juan Soto one last offer and he said, "Sure, let's do it," and, and he's no longer on the table. So I think there's, uh, unless, you know, it's, it's very possible that the Nationals are, A, they're just done with Soto, they aren't making any more offers under current ownership, and B, they know that new ownership wants him gone or wants Corbin gone or whatever. If those two things are true, then yeah, everything lines up for a deal in the next couple of days. But I don't think we definitively know that either of those things are true, let alone both. Um, the one last question I had, just very quick, because we have a few other topics we need to get to. Uh, Mike Rizzo did uh, go on another radio show. <laughs> Funny enough, I'm pretty sure it was the same radio show that he went on when he said that Juan Soto wouldn't be traded, and now everything has happened the last couple months. Um, but he went on a radio show and said that he's not going to water down the return for Soto, not going to dilute it by attaching any bad contracts, either either Corbin or Strasburg. I just, just very quickly... Do you buy that? I do not. I think it's posturing. I think 
you know, you got to watch what they do and not watch what they say. That's kind of been, since we started this site, you know, we've been watching what they do. And sometimes they, any executive will say things, but you have to wonder why they would say things. Like, is it, you know, is it in their best interest to do that? Typically, no. Because what they're really talking about behind the scenes often is completely different from what they're telling the public. So it could be just a leverage play that says, yeah, we're still trying to get the best talent. It could be an indicator that, you know, that's their priority, but it doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't if they didn't get quite the value. You know, what they're trying to do is get fair value. And from an ownership point of view, you know, you don't want to just throw away surplus value for the rest of this year and the playoff. And that's like 30, $40 million at this point, because if you figure in the off season, our number on Soto is probably down to be like 120, right? And he's at 165 right now. So you're basically burning $35 million of trade value if you don't trade him. One way to lock that in is to just clear out Corbin's contracts, like paying off a credit card debt. That's money you don't have to pay anymore. So you're like cashing in that bill, basically. And then the prospect value is a little bit more variable because you don't quite know how they're going to turn out. So you're sort of, you know, by blending the two, you're at least getting a better chance of fair value. And if that's what's important to you, if you're the learner family and you're trying to sell the team, you at least have gotten fair value for that particular asset. So I think it's important to look at it from all angles like that. Mm -hmm. I've said my piece before where I think it's pretty short-sighted to do so from a baseball standpoint. But there's definitely an argument, A, to the, you know, the whole sale and, and what, what the new owners will want, that, that whole part of it that we don't know anything about. And B, if you're only getting $130 million in offers for him right now and you think his value in the offseason is going to be $130 million or lower, then you take the $130 million in prospects and, and young big leaguers and say, okay, yeah, but you're also taking Corbin. Like, I, I if that, that seems yeah. like... A fair approach to me i I, yeah. I think i think if they go into it with the idea of using juan soto to get out of corbin i think that's horribly misguided and, and not a great choice for the future of the franchise but that's uh yeah that, that's that's I, I don't know all the financial figures with the new owners and that's a key part of it okay uh let's try something here i have a handful of more pieces of notes let's try to rapid fire them angels listening on shohei otani trade scene is unlikely uh, do you think there is any chance? So give me a number. What percent chance that Shohei Otani has moved between now and Tuesday? Ten. That is higher than I would go. <laughs> I would say five at, at, yeah, the, well, at the most. <laughs> we're, we're both low. I mean, look, I yeah. mean, the one thing that I, I can't get past is the optics, the PR hit, and all this stuff matters to Artie Moreno because he always feels like Dodgers envy and he doesn't want to be perceived as the owner who gave away Otani and like, and the Dodgers are over there celebrating their championships with all their stars. And he's like, I got my one star and I just traded him away. Like he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I've said it before, but I don't think there's any scenario in which you trade Shohei Otani and your major league team with Mike Trout and his prime already on it gets any better. Yeah, I, I no, and no team right now that will trade for Otani is giving you three or four ab, like surefire big league contributors right now to help build that team around Trout. No, so. I mean they would give you a lot of prospects, you know, for sure. That we have Otani at 109 and could probably get more than that. 
Um, but you know, that's, that's a steep price as we just talked about with Soto, but there'd be a lot of demand because he's a two-way player and so on. But the other factor is Trout it now has a back injury that he has to manage through. And, you know, if you think ahead in a couple of years, he's probably going to end up being a DH when he's like 33. And then, you know, you've got a terrible farm. So like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So you either try to win now with, you know, the two stars you have, you know, and spend more money in the off season to try to get compliments for them. Or, you know, your only big trade piece is Otani, as we talked about, and you rebuild. But if you rebuild, you've squandered Mike Trout for a couple of years. So, like, <laughs> pick your poison. Absolutely. One sad note related to that is that Mike Trout's value has gone negative <laughs> because yes. of that because of that back injury and because of his lengthy, expensive fixed contract and, and how variable those can be. It is a sad day. We should take a commemorative moment about that because the first time I've ever seen it. I was very sad when I saw it when I was running through and I almost brought it up to you and said, hey, are, are we sure this is right? Can this can this not be right? Can we fix this? Can we change this? But we have to have to let it be. It's it's the way it is for at least right you know, now. Yeah, and we only docked him 10% for the back issue, but that is a, I mean, I, and, you know, I read all about this injury stuff and it is a, it is a manageable issue, but it's a persistent issue. And if he doesn't manage it, it's only going to get worse. So it's a chronic issue at this point. So you have to dock that 10% across all the years left of his contract to 2030, like down, 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 down. And so that means his performance value is going to go down another 10% per year, every year, every year. And he's still making 36 and a half million or whatever every year. So all that surplus value got wiped out. Very, very sad day. Okay. Giants and Red Sox, a pair of bubble teams. Do the Giants sell? Do the Red Sox sell? And if the answer is yes to either of those, who are they moving? Um, I think the Giants do sell because I just I get the feeling that it's not happening. You know, it's yeah, you know, and the, the roster is old and starting to break down. You know, Crawford's injured and Belt's always injured, and you know, Longoria is not the same guy. You know, it's just a, just a bunch of old guys getting injured, and you know, the pitching staff is you know some duct tape and wire. <laughs> like it's just not. You know, they tried their they had their run last year with Posey, but Posey's gone. It's just not happening this year, so they might as well get what they can. They don't have a whole lot of chips, so I can see them moving Radon. And Radon's got some risk, you know, because you don't know if he's going to stay healthy. And he's got that, you know, contract uh, which might kick in for next year. He's probably going to opt out because he's pitching well, but he may not if he gets injured. And I know you made that point. Um, so, but I think he's more valuable being traded to them than he is. Um, holding on to them because I think they need to have a more serious strategic sort of approach in the off season to try to kind of get younger, spend some money on, on maybe younger free agents instead of the Alex Woods and Alex, you know, Alex Cobbs of the world and try to try to use whatever capital they have to kind of jumpstart. I wouldn't say it's a full rebuild. They do have some prospects coming, but they're a ways away, but just to kind of just, they need an infusion of young talent instead of all these old guys breaking down. And, and I think they know that. And they also, now that all these guys are off the books, it's it, a lot of Giants fans are frustrated. Isn't it time for them to start flexing their financial muscle again? You know, they got the beautiful ballpark. They got rich ownership. It, I could see them, you know, we're talking years out in the road and so many things can happen between now and then, but they're a team who could, I mean, they were in the Stanton sweepstakes, they were in the Harper sweepstakes, all of that. 
they're a team who could hand Otani or Soto that blank check and really just boost the team if either of those two were to make it to free agency. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think Otani would love it there, and they would love him. That's a perfect match, and he's young, and oh, and they've got money uh, sold. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree with you that for right now, they're kind of in this weird gray area. Their best prospects aren't ready yet, and they don't exactly have a young big league core at the moment, and they kind of need one. You know, I think Yastrzemski's kind of one of your main guys, and he's on the older side. Yeah, well, Logan Webb, there's one. Yeah. You want more than one, and especially if that one is a pitcher. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, how about the Red Sox, though? I think the Red Sox are going to stay in it. Um, they're not that far out of the wild card. I thought last time I checked fan graphs, they're their playoff odds were like 30, 35%. And that's probably close enough, you know, but you can kind of see them maybe trading JD Martinez if they get, you know, uh, you know, I could see a JD for JD swap, frankly, like JD Martinez, the match JD Davis to the, the Red Sox, because they're not that different. They're both right-handed DHs and JD Davis gives you a little bit more control and, you know, you're losing Martinez, you know, cause he's a rental anyway. And, you know, just see what happens. But basically, you know, try to stick, keep your finger, one finger in the race this year, another finger on the future. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, they told Xander Bogarts he's not going anywhere, and I believe them on that one, partially because of uh, we've discussed uh, in the past that there's not really going to be too much of a market for him anyway. So why? <laughs> why do it, especially if you're already this close to... Uh, uh, to to the wild card race right now, might as well hang on to him and give it that one last shot with him. Um, I could see Christian Vasquez. Apparently, the Mets have some interest. He seems more like a Plan B or Plan C if they can't get Contreras. Um, Nathan Eovaldi's a little interesting. He hasn't been very good for them, but with how desperate the market is for pitching, you know, you figure maybe. They could eat a little money, get a little bit of a prospect back for him, and then also go and get. I don't know, some some cheaper arm like Jordan Lyles or, or somebody along those lines that can just kind of replace the innings. And, and maybe he doesn't have the upside of an Eovaldi, but potentially for the same price and adding a prospect, they can they can get the same similar production, uh, some sort of a that would be very high in bloom, I feel like. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. I don't think they're fully selling everything that isn't bolted down. I, I think they're going to try for it. And the good news for them is they've got a stronger farm than people realize. I mean, farm is, you know, in our system, uh, is the fifth most valuable. And they got young pitchers like Brian Bayo, and they've got, you know, <clears throat> um, Marcelo Mayer, one of their top draft picks from last year, and Tristan Casas, and you know, Nick York. And I mean, there's some talent in that farm. It's some, you know, variable time frames, but but you know, you're starting to build a more sustainable model, which means. You know, if you never, even if it doesn't work out this year, next year, the year after, the future looks bright for them. I agree. All right, the Brewers have looked at Joey Gallo, as have the Padres and Rays, and the Brewers and A's have also talked Ramon Laureano. The Brewers need some offensive help, especially in the outfield after they parted ways with Lorenzo Cain earlier this season. They have the pitching staff. They just need something to back it up. What do you see them doing, either just in the lineup in general or if, or if they make an outfield addition? I think it's pretty clear that they are serious about getting another bat, most likely an outfield one. I mean, they got, you know, the last traces of value out of McCutcheon. There's not much left there. 
Um, they have a tendency to do that with these older guys like Kane and McCutcheon, and you know, Yelich isn't the same guy as he was. So they think I think they need a kind of an infusion now. Loriano is really like a high impact bat. He's just kind of you know slightly above average offensively and now slightly above average defensively. So it's not like an impact player. So I'm a little skeptical about that one. And the A's because of the years of control would want a lot. Um, you know I think something an easy fix is okay. Let's give Joey Gallo a shot and he can hit some homers for us. That seems to be a very easy call. You know, and he's a rental. It's not going to cost anything in prospect capital. So, you know, go for it. That's easy. I think that's the best way. Yeah, especially because they don't necessarily have the deepest farm after their top guys. And like Jackson Chorio is not going anywhere. Um, but after that, you know, trading for Loriano is going to really dip into that farm probably a little bit more than they're comfortable with for a guy. Like you said, like he's he's a very good major league player and he's going to help your team out, but he's not elite at anything at least not anymore you know his defense has taken a bit of a hit and it could be small sample size he's been shifted back and forth between right and center field a bunch uh but his center field defense isn't grading as well as it used to and that was kind of a big portion of his value so i still think he is and can be an above average center fielder uh, but if there is that question mark maybe that's a guy not a guy you want to empty out the farm for right all right last kind of grouping here uh, so we touched on all of these guys a little earlier in the episode, but the Guardians with Zach Plesak and Aaron Savali, the Astros with Jose Arquiti, and I, I guess we can lump in uh, Jake Odorizzi there as well. Reportedly, the Cardinals have checked in on him. Uh, the Marlins with Pablo Lopez and the Tigers with Tariq Skubal. Uh, so that's six starting pitchers on those four teams. Of that group, who do you think is most likely to get moved? Who do you think is most likely to stay? Um, I think Urquidy is likely because Houston has a terrible farm and I think they need another bat. So they're trying to poke around and see what kind of, what kind of get for my fifth starter who I don't really need anyway, <laughs> you know, cause they've got, you know, ever since Verlander came back, kind of pushed everybody else down. So now it's Verlander, um, Framber Valdez, Luis Garcia, Javier stepped up a little bit. So like they're they're fine on the end. McCullers is coming back, so they've got excess there. So I think Urquidy's a, a a good move. And as I said before, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, so they're filling that vacuum with a guy they can afford to move for something. I'm not sure what yet, but I think you know, I know they're interested. It's me, Josh Bell, because uh, Guriel's not having a good year, but. That's the first one that comes to mind. I mean, we don't, you know, we know Quintana is getting moved by the Pirates, so that's another one. He's not going to cost a whole lot, and he's you know, a little bit of a bounce back year, so there's something there. I mean, you know, we're talking the middle to lower tiers of the pitching, mar- the starting pitching market, uh, and it's going to get filled up with a couple of these guys, you know. But I can definitely see Arcidi moving. One note on the on the Guardians guys, though, um, neither Plesac nor Savali have like a huge amount of value. They're both like right in the nine to 11 range in our model. And, you know, we know they have a roster crunch. So I think one factor there is that roster crunch and what they're doing is saying, okay, we can afford to lose one of our back end starters, uh, which frees up a roster spot. So we can add a Connor. No, well, he's already the four, but we can add a, a Peyton Battenfield. And so that means there's one last guy we have to add in the offseason before the Rule 5 draft. So they're kind of thinking ahead a little bit that way, just with some roster management and, and seeing what they can get. Because, again, they're kind of like full with 
back-end starter types with Quantrill and those guys. So I think they can afford to move one of those for that reason. I'd probably push back a little bit on the Guardians just because I'm not seeing that type of immediate replacement that they've had in recent years when they've traded guys like this. You know, they trade Bauer and Clevenger and uh, Kluber, and they immediately backfill those guys with, you know, with those with the Plesak and and Savalis of the world who just slot in and they're immediately like fourth or fifth starters and, and good to go. I'm not seeing quite that depth unless there's a couple names I'm missing here. I mean, Battenfield is a name that I've seen mentioned a lot, but he's he's got a, a 331 ERA in, in AAA, but it's kind of an ugly way he got there. 598 Ks per nine, or 5.98 K per nine, 3.07 walks per nine. That's not good at all. Uh, and, you know, another name down there, Logan Allen, the, the the second Logan Allen, I guess I should say. They, I think they already cut the other Logan Allen. That's I'm, I'm yeah. glad there's only one of them in the this organization. This one's better. <laughs> yes, this one's better. They're both left-handed pitchers. That was wildly confusing. Um, but he just made it to AAA, and he hasn't gotten off to the best start there. And so I'm, I'm just not seeing – I mean, I see Connor Pilkington is on their 40-man, but I don't think he's really an immediate fill-in type. And they're in the wild-card race right now. So – Unless they were to go turn around and also, you know, deal a police act for a bat or for prospects or whatever, and also go get a rental like Quintana, um, unless they were to pull something off like that, I'm not quite sure I see them being uh, being as aggressive in shopping those two guys. There's got to be a reason, though. And that's all I'm thinking is roster management. You know, maybe they're higher on Battenfield than we can see. Certainly, we have users of our site who are diehard Cleveland fans who always argue that um, their guys are more valuable than we think they are. Um, Battenfield has been a popular point of discussion on that one. Um, so maybe they know something we don't. Um, but you're right. It's not a huge, it's not like before where there was a sort of, a, but Savali was as sort of a, you know, lower ranked 40 ish prospect. It's not like he was like, you know, burning down the house and, and they made something of, of him. So I just think that's what they do. Yeah, and I mean, they're they're playing with house money right now. They weren't expected to contend, and then they are in that wild card thick of it. And so maybe it's not the end of the world if they, you know, flipped Plesac and got some quality young pieces back, and and whoever they slotted in the rotation after him, if that guy didn't work out and they missed the playoffs, that's not the end of the world. They're they're not exactly they're not pushing chips in specifically for 2022 right now they're they're building a longer term picture and so yeah and whoever they get whoever they get back has to be younger not eligible for the rule five obviously because they've got to solve that that roster crunch that's a big problem for them yep okay i think that's about it for today unfortunately i'm going to have to leave the listeners hanging because we do not have an update on the dixon machado blockbuster Uh, apologies on that (laughs) Well, maybe by the time this episode is posted. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, do you have anything else, John? Um, you know, enjoy the deadline. We've updated our numbers. They're as close as we can get. It's the best we can do. We're not going to be perfect, but, you know, um, it'll be fun seeing how it all shakes out. Yep. Uh, we haven't exactly finalized our deadline plans yet, uh, but we will likely be very active on Twitter that day, you know, always posting the trades as they come through. We might experiment with uh, Twitter spaces uh, to have kind of a live a live audio room for us to chat as, as news and rumors kind of trickle in. But 
Uh, we will be posting once we come to these programming decisions, uh, we will be posting that information on Twitter. So keep an eye out there. And yeah, I, I'm sure we'll see more activity today. This is being recorded middle of the day on Sunday and haven't had any deals yet. Uh, but I'm sure we'll see more activity today as well as tomorrow on Monday. And then a whole flurry of action uh, leading up to the 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern deadline on Tuesday. And I can't wait. It's going to be fun. It's going to be last year. If there's any indication of this year, last year was bonkers on deadline day. And I'm expecting nothing less on this one. I am very excited. <laughs> all right. That'll do it for this week, though. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back at some point here in the near future to break down news and updates. Probably a trade deadline recap episode will be our next podcast. Uh, so until then, stay safe and enjoy the mayhem. This is going to be a very fun week. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.